Um, we're going to go ahead and just get started. Today we are in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. <clears throat> Pastor Brad did a nice job reading that, so I won't read through the whole section again. We'll just kind of break it down a little bit. But today you might have guessed, uh, especially from the slides here, that we're going to be talking about the power of prayer and praying through the battle. Praying through the battle, and you'll see physically as well as spiritually here. Um, if, if some of you have heard me before speak, uh, I did a Bible study, started with Genesis. I'm in like 1 Samuel now. Um, but this is one of my favorite passages. You've probably heard me talk about this before. This particular passage, Exodus 17, isn't spoken a lot, you know, a ton. It's not one of the most famous stories. Moses has a lot of stories, right? He has a lot of good ones, the burning bush, the Red Sea. So there's a lot to pick from. This one sometimes gets forgotten. But I think this is actually maybe one of the most important stories of Moses. And it's one of the most encouraging to my heart. And I know we all have our own little pieces of, you know, scripture that get us through things. But this one's always been a good one. Um, so we know today, and you don't have to, you know, it's got worse over the years. Um, but you can just turn on the news or go on social media. And when there's a big horrific accident, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's some kind of, you know, terrorist attack, whatever, Christians like us will, you know, will send people our, our thoughts and prayers. And we're, and we're serious about that. We will pray for them. And then you'll have groups of people. And I don't have to explain as many of you guys all know some people that will say, I'm sick of your thoughts and prayers. I want action. Your thoughts and prayers don't do anything. What would help is if you blah, blah, A, B, and C, right? And they have these action steps, right? And they are right, by the way, that we do need <clears throat> action. They're not right about the thoughts and prayers, but they are right about action. We're going to see that today, too. There, there is an element of action that is required, uh, but what they fail to realize is prayer is more powerful than they can imagine, or maybe even more powerful than you might uh, have imagined before. But we are going to find today in this story that it does take action along with prayer, which I think is beautiful. It's the partnership with God, and it kind of reminds me of you know, the whole concept of you know, we're only saved by faith in Christ, yet faith without works is dead, right? So it's like this marriage of the two. Faith is only to get you, but it also requires this work, these good deeds, right? So prayer is really no different we're going to see in this story here. So what we're going to read about, and we already kind of did here, is Israel's first war uh, about 3,500 years ago. This goes back 3,500 years, give or take, depending what timeline you use. And it's a battle, their first one's a battle with Amalek. That's who we're going to talk about today. And it's really interesting because Israel's in the news today for their war, right? Their war with Gaza. Um, and it's really, this is a pattern. We know that there's nothing new under the sun. Everything's a pattern. And even what they endured, I'll talk about in October, is it's really a 3,500-year pattern that's actually just kind of continuing, which is really interesting. When you look back on the scripture and you look out into the world, it matches up perfectly. That's why scripture is so important to really study and read. And I tell people, you can read the Bible and you can study the Bible. You should do both, by the way. But, you know, reading the Bible is nice because it's like skimming across, like jet skiing across the top of the water. And there's people that snorkel and do deep dives. That's what a Bible study is. So we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive today. Um, but we're going to see the gospel in Scripture, and I like to illustrate that as well. I'm a big Old Testament guy. I love teaching the Old Testament because a lot of Christians throw out the Old Testament. But you actually can't have the New Testament without the Old Testament, right? It's so important. And a lot of people will throw it out because they say, well, I just want the Jesus stuff. I don't care about the old laws and sacraments. We don't have to do that anymore, right? Uh, but it's so important. That's where Jesus came from. We're going to see the gospels baked in. It's been baked in since before Christ was even born. His story has been written in every single book, uh, the 39 before, you know, Matthew even. And I call it, some of you guys have heard me call it, where's Waldo, but it's where's Jesus. So I love you open up your Old Testament, play a little game with you and your kids. Say, hey, where's Jesus today? It's kind of like where's Waldo, but a way more fun version. Uh, um, and you can remember even Jesus' road to Emmaus. This should not surprise you, by the way. Um, one of Jesus' first sermons after he, he comes back is he's talking to um, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't know who he is yet. 
And he's telling them what, that all about what was told of him in the scriptures in the Old Testament. So I like to think that some of the things we're going to talk about today, Jesus actually mentioned while he was walking on the road to Emmaus, which is an interesting thought. So, but I'd like to put this in a historical setting for you. This is very important when you, when you want to read scripture, by the way. It's so easy to jump in and say, you know, we're going to read about the Red Sea, or we're going to jump in and read about Jesus' baptism from John the Baptist. Whatever, whenever you jump in, what I always recommend people do is walk a little bit backwards and walk a little bit forward in the Bible, and you're going to get a grander scope of what's going on, because it's really going to come into play. So, like, for example, we just read Exodus 17, 8 through 16 on its own, which is really good, but now when we put it into context, it's going to expand our minds. Our minds are going to be open a little bit more to what is really happening. It's going to actually impact the story a whole lot more. So the background of this, so we're in Exodus now. The Israelites have not received the law, by the way. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no tabernacle, nothing like that yet. What has happened before this moment, this first war with Israel and Amalek? What happened that led up to this? Well, we know that, you know, God sent Moses into Egypt. And, you know, you learn about all the plagues. God ransomed the people out. They were slaves into Egypt. Which, by the way, another thing I love about the Bible is people will always argue, is this historically, biblically literal? Or is it metaphorical and spiritual? And I have come to find in my studies that it's both a lot of times. Which, it's actually amazing that you can even write a book that is literally true, historically accurate. But yet, every piece of it has a scriptural story for you personally, how you can use that in your life. But I want to let you guys know that everything that happened here historically accurately happened. So the Israelites really were free from Egypt, and you can call Egypt the world, right? When you do the spiritual application, just like we were freed from our sin as slaves of sin, it's the same kind of concept spiritually. But they, were, they, were, they escaped uh, through the plagues, right? And then they were followed uh, behind. They, you know, they grumbled, said, Moses, would you bring us out here to kill us, right? And then the rod of God, Moses uses it, splits the Red Sea, right? They come across, and remember Miriam's doing the dance, they're all cheering, they're excited, because God just rescued them, right, at the Red Sea. So that was a really cool event, and you're probably like me, like, oh, if I saw that, I would be in for God 100% forever, because I just saw that miracle he did. But you only have to go to the next section to see that they were now in the desert, now that they got through the water, they said, well, all right, well, Moses, well, uh, what are we going to eat? Because I'm really hungry, and we're in the desert, and there's not a lot going on out here, right? And the desert symbolizes, you know, there's a lot of death, right? So there's not a lot of living things. There's not plants, fruits you can really eat, not animals you can really hunt out in the desert, right? So we learned that, you know, Israel got hungry and they complained against Moses, which was a complaint against God. Right after the miracle with the Red Sea, isn't that kind of crazy? The first thing they did after the miracle was complain. That's kind of bizarre. But we're probably no different, right? We're, we're, we're really, I tell people, we, we can be every character in the Bible, we always like to be David, but sometimes we're Goliath too, right? So you've got to understand that we are these grumbling Israelites a lot in our lives because we've seen God act in our lives and do so many miraculous things. Yet we can still grumble about these things that God pr promised to provide. So they wanted to go back to Egypt, right? They wanted to grumble. They wanted to go back to their old life, and that speaks to us too. If you're not careful, you can look at your old sinful life. If you're not careful, you can get sucked back into that, right? But you've got to press ahead. And what does God do? He provides manna. Manna meaning what is it? What is this stuff, right? Because it was another miracle, right? They had to gather it up for six days, you know, the six days and the sixth day they had to do double. You can read about that. Uh, but God provides manna, miraculous bread out of nowhere. That's pretty cool. Another miracle. You'd think they'd be done grumbling, right? Nope. Now you get to this chapter 17. Now we're caught up to chapter 17 where we're at now. And the first seven verses talk about now they're at Masa or Mirabah and they are thirsty. They have no water, right? That makes sense. They had needed food, but now they're going to need water, and desert's not a good place to find water, right? Not a good place to search. 
Um, but they wanted wa water, and what did they do? They complained again. They complained against Moses, and Moses is like, you're complaining to the wrong man. Or you gotta com you're complaining to God, really, right? And this is really important. And this scene here is actually going to set the tone. It will be able to really tie in this battle with Amalek here. Um, so they went to the Red Sea, saw a miracle, then they grumbled for bread. They got it. And then what happens? They grumble for water. And you guys probably remember this is a really important story, a really great gospel illustration is God says, Moses, take that rod that you just used at the Red Sea, right? That you used with the, with the plagues, and I want you to strike the rock, right? I want you to hit the rock and water is going to come out of it. And what was interesting is they were complaining that God wasn't with them. And he actually, if you look at language, says, I will stand in front of the rock at Reb. And so when you think about this, standing, that's a personality trait like of, of a human, right? So you can picture Christ, right? Because he's the rock. And this is what this is illustrating, by the way. Christ is the rock. He was struck on the cross. And that brought us, you know, eternal life, living water, which also represents, we'll see, the Holy Spirit. But he was struck by the rock and the water came out. That's why people will always wonder, why did Moses, why was he not allowed into the promised land later on? And this is a whole other sermon, but it's a good thing to touch on here. The second time, you remember, he was supposed to talk to the rock and he hit it again. And we believe he was carrying out prophecy of what was going to happen to Christ and he broke that pattern, didn't listen to God. Uh, that's one conjecture. But anyway, they complained about water, he strikes the rock, and now there's flowing rivers of water, right? Uh, which is pretty amazing. So now God's brought him through the Red Sea. He's provided them food. He's provided them water. He's providing everything that they've needed throughout their grumbling. He still loves them, and he's still uh, providing for them. Uh, but it's important because this is going to help later in our spiritual application of this as well, that this, this water coming out of the rock spiritually, again, represents the Holy Spirit. The rock is Christ, and the water is the Holy Spirit. You say, Eric, where do you get that from? Are you just making things up? Uh, no. John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, you'll remember it says in John 7, 38 and 39, whoever believes in me, this is Jesus saying this, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Okay, and then what does the next verse say? Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. It's almost like Christ is actually reflecting on this thing at Mirabal, saying, hey, by the way, you know, this is, you, uh, those who follow me will flow rivers of living water. So you can see right here, uh, applied here, uh, from a spiritual perspective, it's showing that Israel, if you can kind of say Israel now, has you know, finally received God after all, all, all this time here. But now it brings us to our current passage of the day, uh, the battle with Amalek that we just read about, right? So let's just, we're going to break down this passage. We're not going to read it again. We're just going to break down the passage verse by verse. So I'm just going to go ahead and start with verse 8. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And you're going to see again this backstory that we just went over is going to be really helpful here. So first question, you're probably saying, who is Amalek, right? A lot of people know about the Philistines and, you know, all the Jebusites, all this stuff, but who is Amalek? Well, if you go back to Genesis 36, you'll see that Amalek was a grandson of Esau, right? And we know the story of Jacob and Esau. Who is Israel? But Israel is Jacob, right? So right out the gate, if you break down who is Amalek, it's Jacob and Esau at war again. Isn't that interesting? The war that continues on. It goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau in the womb, by the way, is when this war started. Uh, but you can see these are descendants from Esau. Um, they are a nomadic tribe. They live in the Negev, which is the south uh, lands, basically between Egypt and where Canaan, where they're going to go. So kind of in that middle ground. So Israel, or the Israelites, are in their stomping ground, so to speak, right? And we get a little more of, a, of uh, attention to this. If, if, if you jump out to Deuteronomy chapter 25, Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 and 18, just a few books later, it actually reflects on this in Deuteronomy, 
verses 17 and 18 of chapter 25 says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. I love this passage because I'm like, wait a minute, we didn't, that's not what Exodus 17 said. It just said that they got attacked by Amalek, right? This expands a little bit more. How did they get attacked? This is not, this is not like later on when the Philistines say, send out your champion, we're going to send out our champion, and we're going to fight this with our best guys. No, what do they do? They actually attacked from the rear. And if you look at this, that means they got the weak ones, you know, in our world, people in wheelchairs, crutches, women and children. That's how Amalek attacked. A pretty cheap way to attack a country, right? They attacked them from behind. So all the leaders are in the front and all their stragglers are in the back. And that's how they started the war, which is interesting because, like I said, in October this year, 23, Hamas, not, not to go full bore into that or anything, but how did Hamas do it? They snuck attack, they killed children, they killed women, and they kidnapped them. This is not brand new. This is three and a half millenniums old. This is exactly how their first attack actually happened. It was not a real war. It was a sneak attack on the weak, right, which made it even worse. So there's nothing new under the sun. This is just patterns. You'll see in the Bible, it's really helpful for you to understand these patterns because they reoccur in our world. They'll reoccur in your life, and you'll see them all throughout. Now, the question here, why would Amalek attack them, right? It's a question. It doesn't really give a direct answer, but like, well, that's kind of, you know, they just leave this group of people. They're not even a nation yet, by the way, right? Because we kind of look at the commandments as their constitution, right? Almost like America wasn't a country until we had the constitution and our laws and everything set out. Same thing with Israel. Israel right now is turning into, from a family to a nation, by the way, and that's why it's called Israel. It's not why it's called the nation of Abraham. Do you ever wonder that? Why isn't it called the nation of Abraham? He's the father, right? Father of the nation. Well, it's because the third generation, Jacob was the one, his family went into Egypt and came out as a nation, which is why it's called Israel, right? Um, so they're just becoming a nation. They come out, but why would Amalek attack them? Well, it says, remember, they live in a desert. They're nomads. And what just happened? They struck that, Moses struck that rock, and what happened? Water flowed out. So if you were a nomadic tribe walking around the desert, and you just heard about this group that has a flowing river right near you, you're probably going to go take it, because that's how it worked back then. You can look into wells, how this happened. Well, there's a whole, back in Genesis, there's wars over wells. It's a, water source is a big thing when you're living in the hot, sandy desert, right? So understanding the backstory gives you a little bit of idea. Anlek was dirty and evil about it, but what was their motive? Probably because they heard there's this flowing water that's coming at Mirabah, and they need water to drink, and they want to war and take over that. <clears throat> so let's go from the spiritual viewpoint. We're going to kind of look at it from the historical and the spiritual all at once. So who is Amalek to us spiritually? Well, Amalek, you could say, is like our flesh, our old sinful nature. And people, you know, will kind of like, so what, what do you mean? How are we Amalek? Well, we're, we're Amalek and we're Israel because salvation, what people, and this is actually a big problem in uh, some church, some people that attend churches have this concept where they'll judge people who aren't Christians and they think that they're better than them because they think somehow that when you get saved, you're glorified into perfection. Um, I don't know, I guess they take things out of context, but salvation, it says, does not delete our sinful nature, right? It doesn't delete our flesh. Otherwise, why would we need to come to church? We'd have the word of God in us. We wouldn't sin anymore. We wouldn't really need to do any of this, right? But the fact of the matter is we're all struggling with our sinful flesh. You get a new creation. You get the Holy Spirit. So you get this new birth and a new creation. But from then on, the war starts. And isn't that interesting? There was no war in Israel until the water comes from the rock at Mirabah, which, again, Jesus straightly directs to the Holy Spirit. And that's true for us. When you receive the Holy Spirit, before that, there was no war in you. You got to do your sinful deeds. There is nothing inside you saying this is wrong. 
You're just living, going with the flow. The minute that Christ came into you, you got the power of the Holy Spirit, there is now this war. You want to do good because of the new creation in you, the Holy Spirit, but yet your sinful flesh, you know, gets the best of you. Galatians 5, 17, remember Paul wrote this, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So you can even see here that, you know, this is, again, literally true how, you know, Israel came out and everything, but you can have a spiritual application here. Look at it um, from that standpoint that we do have this part of us that wars against our godliness. No matter how much we want to do good, there's always this part of us that is, you know, is ready to sin. And that's why we got to be in prayer. That's why we got to be reading our Bibles, right? So in this way, we are both Israel and Amalek in our sanctification stage. And that's the point I really wanted to make is don't forget that we are being sanctified we're justified, that's pretty quick. Justified, once you believe, you have faith, you're saved, justified. And then you're in the sanctification process for about 99.9% .9 of your life, by the way, as a Christian, because after sanctification is glorification, and we're not going to get that until Christ comes back or we die, right? So you pretty much live your whole life in the sanctification phase, meaning we are being made more and more like Christ, but you're never going to reach perfection. And anybody who thinks they reach perfection, you got to send them back to the Bible because they got it wrong. So yeah, so, so there's that for you. <clears throat> All right, now, we're, now let's move on to verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So the cool thing here, this is the first mention of Joshua, by the way. How many of you might not have known that Joshua actually shows up in the book of Exodus? So Joshua, later on, will, you know, he has a whole book dedicated to him because he's the one that's going to lead him in to the promised land. Um, but this is his first mention here. This is where he shows up. At the battle of Amalek, he's going to be the warrior, the main warrior. Now, he's not fighting alone, right? He has to go pick men, it says, and he's going to fight, but he's going to fight the battle for Israel. What's interesting is Joshua in Greek is Jesus, by the way. So Joshua is actually the same name as Jesus. When you say Jesus, and it's funny because there's my one, this one uh, guy I know who's like a, an atheist or agnostic maybe, he said, doesn't Jesus sound a lot like a Greek god? Yeah, I go, well, it's the Greek name, so <laughs> it would sound Greek. Uh, Yeshua, you can call him Yeshua if you want in Hebrew, or Joshua, that's also his name, but you can't take the Greek version and say it sounds like a Greek god. It's just the Greek name. Jesus is a Greek name, by the way, if you didn't know that. But Joshua, so right here, you're going to, every time I see Joshua, uh, now he, you know, he has his failures in Joshua, he doesn't eliminate everybody, but you can see he is a Christ-like uh, figure, right? Joshua, literally, the, na the, the same name. And it means God is salvation. Doesn't that make sense? God is salvation. So even, again, baked right in here, that gospel message, God is salvation, and Joshua is going to go down and fight on the front lines with his people. And the second part of that verse said, talked about the staff of God. So this staff of God is very important for them to take because it's a reminder of God's power with them, right? Now, why would this be so powerful? Like, so Moses could have went up on top of the hill and said, hey, guys, I'm going to the top of the hill. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you guys, right? But no, he says, I'm going to take the staff of God. Why? Well, let's look, think back. When, when Moses at the burning bush, that rod was there. And God said, he gone turned into a snake and then turned it back into a rod. So Moses knows this thing, you know, wow, this is a sign of God's power. Obviously, the staff isn't powerful on its own, but it has God. God uses this as an instrument for his power. After the burning bush, it was used to send the plagues. That's the same rod, struck the Nile, right? The Red Sea, this is the same one that split the waters. And then what did he just do in this chapter early on? This is the same rod that struck the rock and brought the water out, right? So if you're an Israelite and you see Moses with this, rock, this staff, you're almost like, oh, what's going what's gonna to happen now, right? 
So this is a sign of power. That's why he didn't just walk up and say, we're going to go pray. He said, I'm taking the, rock, the staff of God with me, which is really interesting because it's honoring. Sometimes it's called the staff of Moses. Uh, God will call it that to honor Moses, but Moses is always honoring God, saying this is a staff of God. This is God's power. This isn't mine. Moses already knew that. It wasn't his power. It was God working through him. And they're also going to go up on high, which you can see, again, is going to be you know, symbolism that they're going, to go, they're going to fight the higher battle, the spiritual realm. That's the higher one, right? The higher realm that affects our physical realm. So moving on to the next two verses. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So right there, Moses goes up on the hill and not alone, right? It's, he goes up there with Aaron and Hur. Now, Aaron, you guys probably know, he was, you know, the first of the priests. He was Moses' brother. He's the one that God said, all right, if you stutter, I'll give you a mouthpiece. Here you go. It's your brother Aaron, right? And he meets Aaron, and Aaron's his spokesperson. Um, so we know that. Flavius Josephus, this is a Jewish history. It's not in the Bible per se, but most people going back in Jewish history say that Hur was his brother-in-law. He's actually married to Miriam, which Miriam's Moses' sister. So these are, like, this is Moses' family. These are these close boys, right? He's going to go up there with Aaron and probably, we're not sure, but probably his brother-in-law. These are people that are close to him, and they're his prayer warriors, right? And they're going to go up there. It says they held up their hands. Now, people, are, you guys might be thinking, why is Eric talking about prayer? It doesn't say anything about prayer. It's just said, you know, he's lifting up his hands, and he's dropping his hands. Where are you getting this prayer from? Well, 1 Timothy 2.8, you guys might have heard this before. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So it's really important to understand back in ancient Israel, they didn't pray like this. They didn't pray with their hands folded. They prayed like this with their hands up. So that is considered a posture of prayer. And the ancient Israelites who were reading these books before we ever did would have understood exactly what he's saying. When he raised his hands up, that means when Moses prayed, they won. When he dropped his hands, they lost. So it's really interesting to consider that Moses was fighting in the spiritual realm, although it looked like in, you know, in the world, if you would ask anybody else standing on the sidelines, they would have said, well, Moses isn't doing a whole lot. He's, he's up there on the hill kind of hiding out, making Joshua and all the guys do all the work. I don't know if that's really fair, but what we see from Scripture here is that Moses was probably doing the heavy lifting, really. And, and that sounds crazy to a lot of people. It's like, I'd much rather pray than go out there with swords and cut people's heads off, right? I'd much rather do that. But Moses, Moses actually, we're going to find out, was fighting the most important battle, the prayer one in the spiritual realm, while the men fought on earth. And it says when he, when he stopped, they began to lose. When his hands dropped, they began to lose. So it's a direct connection with prayer that when he was praying, they were winning. When he wasn't, they were losing. And this is a great, again, when you read the New Testament, you reflect on these Old Testament stories, it makes so much sense. What does 1 Thessalonians 5.17 say? Pray without ceasing. Have you ever seen a story that illustrates it so, so well, other than Moses? He's praying, they're winning. He's not praying, they're losing. He's praying, they're winning. When he's not praying, they're losing. If you looked at Moses, what would you tell Moses to win? Hey, don't stop praying, right? Keep pray, pray without ceasing, right? So did maybe Paul had this in mind, thinking back on, he would have known this issue, like, you got to keep praying. You can't stop praying. But I think any of us here, if we had to stand with our hands in the air for about five hours, or however long it would have taken, we'd get pretty tired, right? Our muscles naturally naturally would get tired. I, but I think, it's, I think it's awesome here that the Holy Spirit's kind of even trying to tell us, I think, here, that the prayer life 
is important. While the action is necessary, it all stems from the spiritual realm. Why do I say that? Well, because there were more men probably fighting on the ground than praying, but in the scripture, it's not listed. The names aren't listed like that. We have one guy listed on the ground, Joshua, and we have three guys lifted up in the prayer team, right? So most people would have said, hey, I need, you know, three, three of my, I'd have three quarters of my guys down here and a quarter of my guys praying. The Bible kind of flips it. It says, no, these, you know, these three names, and there's one name down here, showing there's an emphasis on prayer. Prayer is very, very important. And I hate that the occult stole this one saying. And I'm sure you've seen people like, well, sometimes put their fingers up like this and say, as above, so below. People are into occult, do these things. I hate that they stole that because it's actually true um, that as above, we're learning from this. As What happens in the spirit realm directly affects the physical world. And to have the greatest impact, we must access the spirit world through prayer to God. That's what this is telling us. To have the, you know, our actions 100% are, you know, are needed. They're definitely needed. But prayer has the most power. And, and because God will fight our battles for us, like he's told us over and over again. Uh, but the spirit world does rule the physical world. And a lot of times when you have issues down here, if you're not praying about it, probably won't get solved. You'll be impressed how much when you pray for things, how much things change. And I really highly recommend that when you pray, if you haven't yet, start a prayer journal, whether you're praying for other people, whether you're praying for yourself, and just make a check mark every time you see a prayer answered. Because so many times, we, we're kind of like kids on Christmas. We open up a present, we open up a prayer, like, cool, we got it. And we throw it to the next one, we ask for, look for the next prayer, right? But take time to reflect, see how God's really worked in your life, and know, you'll notice how your prayer life, you know, you'll see direct correlations in the physical uh, world around you. Verse 12, so, but Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So, so like I said, your hands are up, that'd be pretty tiring. Moses was growing tired, and it was hard work praying for others. I also love this, by the way. Moses wasn't really asking so much, like, God, can you please send me a, you know, a camel with another nice river of water? He was praying for Israel. He was praying for others, thinking about praying and, and, and getting the victory by going to God for them, which is a really good reflection for us, that we should be praying for the saints. The Bible says that. We should be praying for other believers around us to win the victory. And that's what Moses was doing here. But he got tired, like I would have, like you would have, right? And what did they do? They took a stone and put it under him. So... They didn't have fancy chairs back then. They couldn't take like recliners or anything like that. So they had to grab some stone and shift under it. And he sat down on the stone so his legs could get rest. And I think that's really cool because who's the rock that we rest on? Jesus Christ, right? So another spiritual gospel application here. When Moses was tired, who did he rest on? He rested on the rock, right? Which is another symbolism of Jesus Christ. But when this happened, it says Aaron and Hur began to lift up his hands for him and help hold up his hands. And it says that it, they were steady until the going down of the sun means the rest of the day that they, they didn't stop praying. They prayed without ceasing, right? So it shows that Aaron and her joined in. While it was Moses' job, you know, he started the prayer. He needed the help of Aaron and her. It was a group effort. And I honestly believe if Moses would have been up there alone and Aaron and her would have said, oh, come on, Moses, you got it. Pray a little harder. They would have lost the battle. I really do believe that. But it took group effort. It took prayers of Aaron and her to help Moses to, to, call, to call out to God, and God answered them. And that in our own lives, the spiritual application is, in our own lives, we need our own Aaron and her. There might be things that you're praying about in your life by yourself, and you're wondering, why isn't it happening? I'm getting tired of praying for this. I don't see any results. Have you ever thought 
about considering an Aaron and her in your life. People that you trust. You know, it's not one of those things that we joke around. Sometimes prayer chains can be gossip chains. Like, please pray for this person. They're really going through a hard time in their marriage, right? It's like, mm. That's, that's, you know, sometimes we're not supposed to be spreading things out unless you're really truly meaning, you know, certain prayers or whatever. But do you, you, you got to find people that you can trust, that you can share uh, and be prayer partners with them. You need to be an Aaron and her to somebody else too. Sometimes we get caught up in thinking like, I need people to help me pray so I can be Moses, right? But remember, we're every character. You should be an Aaron or a her to somebody else. Somebody else is going through something that they're praying for. You know, somebody's struggling with addiction or something at their job that you can stand beside them, lift their hands up, say, how can I pray for you? What are we going to pray for? I'm going to be praying for you. Keep me updated on how it's going, right? So it shows that there's a group effort and it shows why we need community, why we need a group of believers. And I mentioned this a little bit this morning when I was talking in Sunday school, that so many people, there's people today right now who are believers that are at their house right now and said, I don't need to go to church because I got Jesus right here and me and my relationship. And that's fine. They'll get into heaven if they truly believe, right? Uh, but, but what they're doing is they're suffering from not being in community. They're not here helping us pray. And they're not here so we can help them pray. We're not doing life together. We're designed by God to be a body, which means we need each other. And that, again, is illustrated right here. We need prayer warriors to help us in our spiritual battles. And think about how many people neglect prayer meetings. The prayer meetings on Wednesdays or prayer meetings, you know, we're going to get together and pray. People don't really take it seriously. Uh, there, I mean, there are obviously a lot of people out here that do, but a lot of people across America, Christians, don't really take it as seriously as possible. They'll work it in. They'll maybe do a 30-second prayer on the way to work or something when they're at a red light, but otherwise they don't really set aside time to pray. But look at this story and look how you know, effective it is. Imagine if we had prayer meetings every single day. I think we'd actually see physically things change in the world around us. And that's what this is saying here. There was a real war being fought, and I'm sure... Some of the Israelites who grumbled about food and water probably said, Moses, what are you doing up there? Like, what are you doing praying? We could use an extra hand down here. The Amalekites are beating us up now, right? But they had no idea the importance of it until the battle, you know, later is won. And I'm sure Moses tells them about that. But again, this is, this is reflected in James chapter 5, verse 16. It says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, right? And we see that illustrated right here. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And, with, and if you don't use that power, it's just foolish, really, right? God gave us the, the power of prayer to ask him for anything. And what did he say? You do not have because you do not ask. And how many times are we, are we just, and I love this concept too, we go and we'll complain to our people about our problems, whether it's our family member, our spouse, people at work, we'll complain and tell them. And you think about, did you ever think to stop and tell God about it? Do you ever think, because that's prayer, Ta tell God about your problems and he wants to help you. So think about that next time we're grumbling. It's okay to tell, you know, you want to share your issues with people. It's community. We're community. We're here to help each other, listen to each other, encourage each other, but also remember uh, to pray to the Lord. Now, there is also an, uh, another even deeper spiritual application I just want to touch on here. I won't go too far in this. You can go to this on your own, but there are some that, say, that look at Aaron and her even as types. So Aaron is the leader of the priest, right? We know the Aaronic priesthood. Other than, the, you know, Jesus comes from Melchizedek. But everybody else, the Aaronic priesthood comes from Aaron, right? And Jesus Christ, you know, he's, you know, he's our priest. Romans 8.34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So some people see this as you can put us in the, in the seat of Moses, right? But we're praying for things. We're exhausted. And who helps lift our hands? But it says right here, that Christ actually intercedes for us. Where he's at right now on the right hand. It says that right in Romans 8. So you could say that Aaron maybe even symbolizes Christ here, helping us lift up our hands as we pray. So then who would her be? Well, 
Her, if you look at the name, means brilliant light or nobility. And a lot of people believe that her is a representation of the Holy Spirit, right? Well, how would that make sense? Well, you go to the same chapter, Romans 8, except you go back eight verses, the verse 26, and it says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, which Moses was tired. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So think about that. So this could be this symbolizing, even all the way back here, what we learn in Romans, you know, Aaron being the priest, it could be the Christ, and her symbolizing the Holy Spirit, how when we pray, the Bible says it, it's beyond our understanding to an extent, how Jesus and the Holy Spirit pray for us. You know, you don't even have the words and the Holy Spirit will pray. It's interesting, but, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit, according to Romans, are our prayer partners as well, which I think is a really interesting point, just to kind of touch on there. So now verse 13, we're getting, we're getting down to the end here, but ver- verse 13 and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So now we see, we just saw the spiritual battle. Moses and Aaron and her are up there praying to the end of the day. And now we see what happened on the physical side. Now we're seeing the physical repercussions of this. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. He defeated them and his people with the sword, right? So again, it shows that battle and action is still required. It requires faith and obedience in action, right? That's why Israel won. Faith and obedience in action from Joshua and the men. I guarantee if Moses, Aaron, and her went up there and prayed, and Joshua said, I don't know, they're praying through this, why don't we sit on the sidelines and maybe God will send, you know, another flood or something like that, or, you know, some meteors or something. They could have said that. I don't think it would have worked, because it shows here that there is some kind of action required. You can't sit on your chair and pray for miracles to happen and not be doing something for the Lord, taking steps in that direction. And you can ask for guidance. The Bible says that. You can ask him to guide you in the direction you should walk, but you should always be doing some kind of faithful, obedient action as Joshua demonstrates here. And I often, I, I wondered as I, as I studied this, I wondered if Joshua later on, because we have the book of Joshua, if he ever reflected on this battle, and I think he might have, especially after the battle of Jericho. So a lot of people think of Joshua's first battle as the battle of Jericho, but technically he actually fought the first battle here with Amalek. And he, again, he probably reflected on it. reasons why is, Right before he goes into uh, Jericho, which I believe is chapter 6, there's chapter 5. How many of you guys remember when Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army, right? And he's brilliant, shining this brilliant light. And we believe that to be Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, right? Uh, and, he, and he shows up, and I always call it Joshua meeting Joshua, right? Because they have the same names, right? And Christ, you know, hadn't revealed himself in full deity later on yet, but he sees him here, and we believe that's a pre-incarnate Christ. And Joshua, remember, asks him. He sees this, and he says, are you with us? Are you with them in Jericho? And I love the answer. It says, neither or no. Sometimes they say, no. I'm not with you or them. I'm with the Lord, right? And I think that's always a really important answer ourselves. I can, you can do a whole sermon on that, but how it's always important people say, are you on my side or their side? It's like, I'm on God's side. So if you're on God's side, I'm on your side, right? If you're not, I'm not. So, but the, the interesting thing about this is what, that's, what that story in Joshua was trying to tell, and I tell people is, it's interesting how that angel, the, the, the commander of the Lord's army, shows up right before Jericho, and I believe it was God telling him, I'm going to fight these battles. And of course, Jericho is miraculous. How would you win a battle circling seven times unless you had some spiritual forces working for you? So it showed us that the Lord, Jesus Christ, was always the one. And we learned later in the New Testament, he was, you know, back in Egypt, carrying him all the way out. He had fought all the battles. He had caused everything to happen. So I wonder, after, you know, he fought Jericho, and he goes, wow, I just saw, you know, the angel of the Lord... And he just definitely was the reason I defeated this. It gave him courage to fight later. He probably thought back and was like, wow, that battle with Amalek, I think he was there too. And I'm sure he thought about that later on and said, well, if he was here fighting for me, he's always been fighting. And the reason that Moses prayed was I was out there fighting, but there was somebody before me fighting. 
which I believe was Jesus Christ uh, fighting for him there. Now we can look at the spiritual application. What sword do we have to defeat our Amalek? Remember, our Amalek is our sinful flesh, or it could be, you know, the spirit, you can even consider it spiritual evil out there that's, you know, enticing or causing your spiritual battles to take place. How can we defeat that, right? Well, it says Joshua did it with the sword, right? What is our sword? Well, Ephesians 6, 17 and 18, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the Bible, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So in Ephesians chapter six, again, thinking back on this Moses battle, it makes so much sense. They're talking about putting on the armor of God, doing it with the sword. Our sword is the word of God and praying. Meaning, if you want to defeat your sinful flesh, which we are at war with every single day, you want to do that, you have to be reading your Bible and praying. Every day you skip reading the Bible or praying, you are going to lose the war. Amalek's going to win. When you lift your hands up and you start praying and you read the Bible, you will be defeating your sinful ways and nature and winning your spiritual battles. That's really what it's saying to us at our own personal uh, spiritual level, I do believe. So remember to read and pray. And it's unfortunate when people will tell me, you know, I read once a week. It's like, all right, now imagine if we, you know, you ate lunch once a week. It'd be very different. But the Bible says this is our daily bread. So why would you starve your spirit, right? You wouldn't starve your physical body. You just wouldn't do it. So make sure you're in your word and you're praying because that is the way to defeat our Amalek. And then to end, wrap it up, the last three verses, 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Oh, that's brutal. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So what's interesting things is, write this as a, a memorial in a book and recite it in the years of Joshua. So this is the first command by God to write something down. He had, remember, he had not written down the commandments yet. This is a command to write this down before he even gets the 10 commandments at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai um, later on. Uh, but it's an important thing he wrote down. He promises to wipe out Amalek. And a lot of people look at this like, man, that's brutal. I thought God loved everybody. Why is he going to blot out and wipe this group out? And he has his own, you know, he has his own reasons that sometimes are beyond our understanding, whether it's you know, the worship of other gods or whatever it may be. Um, but Amalek did a pretty terrible thing. Remember, they didn't fight a clean fight. They, they attacked the women, and the children, and the crippled, right? And the stragglers. So God is going to put a heavy judgment on them. And uh, what's interesting is, you know, I'm, I'm sure when they heard, you know, it'll you know, blot them out. They're like, cool, they're going to wipe them out forever and ever. But that doesn't happen for hundreds and hundreds of years. <clears throat> so they were actually at war with Amalek <clears throat> for quite a long time, which, again, is really symbolic of our flesh. Again, we don't get to defeat, you know, our flesh, you know, right away. I wish we could defeat it once and for all and blot it out, but we can on our own. But in Israel's history, it didn't happen. Even King Saul, King Saul, if you remember when he let a King Agog live, uh, God said, go and wipe out the Amalekites. And they, he was supposed to wipe out the animals and everything, but Saul failed. He got greedy. He let Agog live, their king live, probably let some other Amalekites live because they carried on, and he ended up taking their fattened calves and all these things. He got greedy. He wanted to basically take the spoils, and that was ultimately King Saul's downfall, by the way, after that. That's why it's you know, stripped away. It's given to David, um, but he was supposed to wipe out, and he didn't, and it wasn't until King Hezekiah which is, you know, after the Civil War, that's later on when the kingdom split, is when they finally get rid of the Amalekites and they're finally blotted out then. So I'm sure they were encouraged when they said, cool, they're going to defeat and blot out Amalek. God's going to blot them out forever and ever. But they didn't see it in their lifetime or, you know, generations to come until King Hezekiah. But what's interesting, it says that Moses created an altar called the Lord is my banner. In Hebrew, this is Yahweh Nisi, or some people call it Jehovah Nisi. 
but the Lord is my banner. And I like to think of it as kind of like waving a high flag. And it's football season now, so I know there's a lot of people out there who, you know, who might be you know, fans tonight if they're Chiefs or Bills fan or whatever. They win. What do, what do fans do? They put banners up. They put flags. They wear their T-shirts, and it's like they're heroes, right? And they start cheering, and they're chanting, and they, they wave their flags out of excitement. I went to Penn State, so it's really crazy there. At the student section, you're in there, and people go nuts. They start doing their chants. And it's almost like, in a way, it's a, it's a sign of worship, really. Uh, and that's why sometimes sports and things can turn into idolatry if you're not careful. They're not bad on their own, but they can turn into idolatrous behavior for these kind of reasons. What Moses is kind of doing with his altar, the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi, is basically like waving a flag saying, God is our Savior, he'll defeat our enemies, and it was a sign of encouragement, right? Basically like waving a flag without a flag is the concept here. And what it was showing is that, that Moses and the people, they had seen so many miracles, and this event here made them believe they had faith that God would keep his promises and defeat their enemies for them, just like he had done here right to Amalek as they prayed. And I think that's a really, uh, really awesome thing. It was a, it was a memorial to, to them. What's interesting is that they didn't set this up at the, at, after the Red Sea when they were cheering. They didn't set it up after manna. They set it up now, probably because they really got to see the real true battle. They had to fight their own hands, like, you know, the, the sweat and blood and tears. And now they're finally appreciative and enough to, to put it, the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi, and he's going to be, you know, what they hope on. <clears throat> Spiritual application, Jesus Christ, the Lord, is our banner, right? While we are still at war with our Amalek, with our flesh, one day Christ says he will blot out sin and death forever. So again, this spiritually adds up just to like what I was saying this whole time. So we fight with our, our spiritual sinful flesh, but you know there is going to day come when Christ comes back or we die that we will be glorified meaning he'll turn us into perfect beings, where we will no longer even have the desire to sin. So he promises that he will blot it out, and we all wish he would blot it out today, right now, so we could just be perfect and not sin anymore, but that's not the case. We have to fight our battle with Amalek. We have to be praying, and we need to find our prayer partners and prayer warriors to help us get through these spiritual battles. But one day, Christ himself will blot out our Amalek, will blot out our sinful flesh. And you can see that throughout the Bible. The Bible tells that same story. So it's going to make some closing points as I close here. Uh, overall, the message is, in the end, prayer wins the battles. You've got to pray through the battle. This is literally a physical battle. And you can literally pray for physical wars going on today. But pray through the spiritual battles as well, your own battles in your life, and the battles that are happening to your friends. Remember, Moses wasn't one fighting on the ground. He was praying for Joshua and those fighting on the ground. So when you see people, you see missionaries, you see believers, other doing, doing work, pray for them. Lift them up in prayer. That's exactly what Moses was doing, and prayer wins battles. I know that I said that many mock the thoughts and prayers, um, but we can see right here, um, that's a worldly view. The Bible here right, right here says that prayer is more powerful than anything else that we can do because it, it's leading up into God's hands, and he'll guide us. As long as we take faithful and obedient action, Remember, you can't be idle. You can't be sitting in your recliner praying for, you know, whatever. You actually have to be doing the work, the faithful, obedient work of the Lord. And if you're not sure which step to take, which direction to go, ask God and he will guide you, the Bible says. <clears throat> so, uh, again, the, spiritual, the, the historical lessons for us is that God was faithful to Israel and he will be faithful to Israel in the end. Um, it says that in the end he will save Israel once and for all. The only reason they're blind right now is for our own benefit and behalf as Gentiles. Uh, but you can see here that God loved his people. God keeps his promises, and he kept his promise. He had victory over Amalek. They were blotted out later on. Um, but that God is there with Israel just like he's there uh, with us. And remember, again, it required both prayer and obedience. Moses, Aaron, Hur, and Joshua. It was a team 
a team effort. Remember that when you face battles in life, to pray without ceasing. And I know it sounds, again, absolutely tough. We have nine to five jobs and all kinds of things. But pray without ceasing and, and remember to pass it on to your Aaron and your her so they can be praying if you know you're, you're working whatever. So there can always be prayers going up um, to the Lord. Remember that we need to be in community with each other, lifting each other up in prayer. So it can't just be about ourselves. We need to be praying with each other. And I really encourage you guys, again, to have some prayer partners, uh, make it to prayer gatherings, and really take it, take it seriously because it's the, it's the work that is the most important. And last but not least, the gospel message in all of this, remember that Jesus is your savior and your rock to rest on. Just like when you're praying and you get tired, rely on Christ, he is your rock. And he is our Joshua. Jesus is our Joshua who will fight for us on the front lines and he'll defeat our spiritual enemies if we just pray and, and trust in him. Christ won the battle against sin and death when he went to the cross and he has written down that just like Amalek, he will blot out our sin and death forever. And for that reason, we can say, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner.